From 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Lake Effect. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Today, we'll look at the new legislative voting maps submitted to the Wisconsin Supreme Court. Then, learn about a book that uncovers the history of a little-known tile factory in South Milwaukee. Carl Bergman's important to Milwaukee because we live with the products that they created in their factory. We live with those tiles, and we live with those tiles in our homes, in our schools, churches, even in businesses still. Plus, the latest episode of our Live at Lake Effect music series features Milwaukee's own Willie Porter. Songs are like a ride, and there's got to be variation within the ride that makes it enjoyable for the players, but also the audience gets elements that are unexpected. All that's coming up on Lake Effect, but first, here are today's headlines. This is Lake Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Thanks for joining us. Late last year, the Wisconsin Supreme Court ruled that new maps must be drawn for Wisconsin's legislative districts. Now the new map proposals are here, drawn by legislative Republicans, Senate Democrats, Governor Tony Evers, and both the liberal and conservative petitioners in the case. John Johnson is a research fellow at the Marquette Law School's Lubar Center. He released a detailed analysis and comparison of each of the maps, and he joins Lake Effect's Joy Powers to talk about it. What are the different measures you use to compare these maps? The Supreme Court laid out a number of criteria that they said they would use to judge the proposed remedial map submitted to them. Obviously, population deviation, its compliance with the federal civil rights law that requires minority opportunity districts. Of course, the districts must be contiguous. That's what this last case was about. The number of times the districts split municipalities, counties, and wards. Fewer is better. Some might be inevitable. Um, How compact the districts are, that's actually in the Wisconsin Constitution. And then, crucially, they said they would consider the partisan impact of any plan that was submitted to them. Now, they laid those out as criteria, but many of those criteria can vary depending on how you turn them into a metric. And the court didn't say, here's exactly how to measure partisan impact, or here's the formula we want you to use to measure compactness. So I've tried to come up with fair, reasonable metrics and then apply them uniformly to each plan. There are other valid ways to measure these things, too. Sure. Now, one of the things that I I think people are most interested in is uh, the partisan lean of these different districts. One of the things you look at in comparing them is how these districts might vote in future elections. How do you model that outcome? So I very specifically am not trying to predict the future. I'm just trying to say, remember the 2022 state legislative elections? Here's a model that shows how those districts probably would have voted if the, if the same election had happened under these alternative maps. Uh, you can't just add up the votes for Democratic and Republican legislative candidates in 2022 because so many seats weren't contested by both parties. So instead, I used the results from the governor's race, the U.S. senator, the state treasurer, and the attorney general's races to make a statistical model that would predict the legislative vote in a district. People vote straight tickets so often, you can pretty well predict how a legislative race is going to go down using those statewide races, but not everyone votes a straight ticket. In 2022, Republican state legislative candidates did quite a lot better than most state Republican candidates. Um, And so 
my model of the 2022 election thinks that Republicans would still have held at least a one-seat majority across all of these plans that were submitted. Um, now, the 2024 election will be different, a bigger electorate. If there's more competitive maps, the Democrats might field uh, you know, better candidates with more funded campaigns. It's hard to know, though. I'll leave that as an exercise for the listener to imagine how that race might differ from 2022. Fair enough. So let's get into a few of these maps. Now, um, who are the parties who created these maps? One was submitted by Governor Evers, another by the Legislative Republicans. A group of Democratic state senators submitted a plan, a group called the Right Petitioners, which is just a, a group of Wisconsinites working with a prominent Democratic-aligned law firm, submitted a plan, and then the conservative law firm Will and the progressive law firm Law Forward both submitted plans. Of course, they, they submitted them on behalf of a group of petitioners, citizens in Wisconsin, but uh, I think it's more meaningful to refer to them by the well-known law firms with strong ideological tilts that those of us who follow politics in Wisconsin know well. Now, one of the things that you looked at in your analysis is uh, both the maps that were submitted recently and then the maps that were submitted back in 2021 or 2022. Is that is it? Sort of both, yes. Yeah. <laughs> as that cycle went. Um, and it's interesting to see how different some of the submissions are. I think one that's pretty striking is Evers' uh, 2024 submission compared to uh, 2021, the least change map. Yes, right. So as listeners may recall, in late 2021, the Wisconsin Supreme Court had realized that it would have to pick the next maps because the legislature and governor had gridlocked. And they well, I shouldn't say they had to. They could have let a federal court do it, but they, they chose to. The state Supreme Court did, and they announced that they would use a criteria called least change. That was, the I believe, the first time that phrase and concept has appeared in judicial redistricting in Wisconsin. So they said they would be looking for a map um, that deviated as little as possible from the previous decade's map. The legislature simply submitted the map they had already drawn, which was basically a, re a refreshment of um, their gerrymander from a decade prior, um, changing it in places to kind of update it. The western suburbs of Milwaukee particularly come to mind in that regard. Tony Evers drew his own least change map that actually moved fewer people from one district to another. It, so it was less changey than the the legislature's. And indeed, the Supreme Court init initially chose his map. And then the U.S. Supreme Court threw it out under civil rights law grounds um, because of the way it changed minority opportunity districts in Milwaukee. Um, so that's the context for the Evers lease change proposal, which was really constrained by needing to match the by then decade old Republican gerrymander. Mm. It's interesting to consider uh, how much the Evers map has changed because in his most recent submission, the map still does favor Republicans. Now, when you go to the Republican uh, legislature's maps that they've proposed, it's it's interesting, basically down to the 16.3% favoring uh, Republicans uh, in, the, in this current submission. And the one in 2021 is 163 uh, favoring Republicans. This is the assembly map. But they got there in a slightly different way. Yeah, the legislative Republicans' submission is essentially just their old map with the small contiguity issues fixed. They didn't actually draw, you know, new districts in the way that the other planners did. So for partisan purposes, it's the same map. 
which seems to go against one of the, one of the core things that the Wisconsin Supreme Court asked for. The Supreme Court did say they wouldn't reward a least change approach in choosing a new map. They also, it seems like they are considering partisan lean. They are, yeah. They explicitly chose to do that. Uh, And they didn't say exactly what they were looking for, but they said they would consider partisan impact as, as a criteria when choosing these maps. As we look at uh, the vast majority of these maps, both the assembly maps, actually all of the assembly maps, and then most of the Senate maps, they do still favor Republicans. In the 2022 election. In the 2022 election, yes. uh, They seem to likely favor Republicans. It's, of course, impossible to know the future. That being said, I think a lot of people would be surprised by that, especially since these maps, some of them were drawn by Senate Democrats. They were drawn by Governor Evers. Why would that be the case, that we're, we're still seeing maps that likely favor Republicans, even though the people who are drawing them might not benefit from that? The political geography of Wisconsin is such that when you follow traditional redistricting criteria of trying to make districts compact and respecting municipal boundaries, and when you insist, as federal law requires, on drawing minority opportunity districts, you will inevitably do some packing of Democratic voters into heavily Democratic districts because Democrats live in a concentrated way in cities like Madison and Milwaukee. And there's not an analogous concentration of the Republican population elsewhere in the state. So just by following those neutral redistricting criteria, you'll end up with some of a Republican advantage. To be honest with you, I was surprised that some of these Democratic or liberal submitted plans managed to draw as many Democratic-leaning seats as they did. There are quite a few plans here where in a good year for Democrats, you can see them pretty easily getting a majority of, of the Assembly or the Senate. And that, I think, took some careful map drawing with that particular partisan balance in mind. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting to look at it because, of course, I'm looking at the uh, 2022 outcomes and I'm going, well, but part of this is that it seems like a lot of these maps are creating more competitive districts. And so although, yes, in 2022, it might have gone for Republicans, by nature of having a more competitive district, it's more of a toss up in the next one. Is that is that where we're sitting? Yeah, I think most of these proposed remedial maps would create a scenario where there were quite a few members of both parties who would be genuinely worried about losing re-election. It seems like, to some extent, though, that's kind of the the purpose of redistricting when we're talking about overcoming gerrymandering. Part of the impetus for that seems to be we want to create more competitive districts so politicians are more responsive to their communities. I don't think I've ever talked to someone who felt that the problem with democracy in Wisconsin was that too many politicians were losing <laughs> losing their re-election campaigns. You know, it's, it was very uncommon in the last decade for an incumbent to ever lose their seat. Very uncommon. I think you could count it on one hand across all of the election cycles. It's interesting. One of the things that some critics seem concerned about is that Redrawing these lines would pit incumbent politicians against one another, in part because now they'll be living in different districts. Uh, Is that something the Supreme Court is considering or honestly would ever consider in deciding which maps to choose? They don't mention it, 
as something that they'll consider in their majority opinion. Certainly, some people, particularly incumbent legislators, would prefer them do that, but there, I don't think that's a legal principle in Wisconsin that they would follow. To me, it doesn't quite make sense because we're going, oh, well, this one person might lose. And you go, well, sure. but you, you can see why in some states, Democratic and Republican incumbents are able to come together to pass a map because they share an interest, <laughs> a bipartisan interest in protecting themselves. But, you know, most nonpartisan redistricting advocates think that taking individual politicians into account when you draw districts is not the right sort of thing to do. As we look at these maps, what are some of the themes that you saw and what do you find most interesting about them, especially when we compare them to the maps we'd be moving from? You know, one one thing I thought was interesting doesn't actually have to do with um, partisan lean at all, uh, but is about the tension between compactness and keeping municipalities intact. The petering plan, which the court determined it, it would not consider because petering wasn't one of the original petitioners on the on the case, the petering plan was the most compact by my measurement of any of them, like noticeably more compact than the rest of the plans, which are otherwise broadly similar to each other in terms of their compactness. But the petering plan also split more municipalities than some of the other plans. And I think that's because many municipalities have weird shapes. And so if, you're, if your goal is to match those municipal boundaries, you're going to end up drawing a less compact shape than if your goal was to maximize the compactness of a district. And I was thinking, well, how would the court measure the relative importance of those two criteria? And I'm not sure, although it is worth pointing out that the goal for districts to be compact is in the Wisconsin Constitution. And the Wisconsin Constitution does not actually say that you shouldn't split municipalities. That's a traditional redistricting goal, but of the two, only one is in the Constitution. Interesting. Right now, what is the timeline for when the Wisconsin Supreme Court is likely to make a decision on these maps? The Wisconsin Election Commission says that they need to know for sure what districts will be used in the next partisan elections by mid-March. The court has said it will give the legislature and the governor the opportunity to pass maps. And if they did so, those, those would be used in the state. And they said if they don't do that in time for the next election, then, then they will impose a remedial map. So I think we have a pretty firm deadline, and I can't predict what sequence of events will happen before mid-March. But the important thing is that local officials be able to make sure their wards match the new districts and that prospective candidates know which district they live in and who's, what voters they need to get signatures from in advance of the August partisan primary. If one of these maps that rather dramatically redraws the districts is chosen, many more people are going to live in a district with a competitive partisan primary in August than is usual. That's an election that's usually pretty low turnout, and there aren't a lot of interesting races on the ballot in many places, not a lot of competition. But that is likely to be quite different this year. So if you're a voter who doesn't always participate in the August primary, I would encourage you to Take a look at your ballot a couple weeks ahead of time this year and see if it's more interesting to you this time. And you can always check out WUWM's Voter Guide. All right. Well, John, thank you so much for joining us here on Lake Effect, and thank you for sharing your work. My pleasure. John Johnson is a research fellow at the Marquette Law School's Lubar Center, and he spoke with Lake Effect's Joy Powers. 
You can find a link to his analysis of the maps at wuwm.com. We want to hear from you as we gear up to cover local elections and the presidential election in November. You can have a say in our 2024 election coverage by filling out our election survey. You can find a link at wuwm.com. What you tell us will help inform the stories you hear on Lake Effect and WUWM. In about 20 minutes, we'll bring you our latest episode of Live at Lake Effect, where we hear music from local and touring musicians from inside a surf shop in Shorewood. But first, we'll tell you about the history of a little-known tile factory in South Milwaukee, and where you can still see the tiles around the city today. That's coming up on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. Listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. After 30 years of research, three authors have released a book that details the history of a little known tile factory in South Milwaukee. The book is called Carl Bergman and the Continental Fans and Tile Company. It tells the story of Carl Bergman, a Belgian immigrant, and showcases thousands of his handmade tiles. Lake Effect's expert Nunez speaks with one of the authors, Ben Tayeski, who's a local tile maker himself. He starts by explaining the significance of the tiles here in Milwaukee. Carl Bergman's important to Milwaukee because we live with the products that they created in their factory. We live with those tiles, and we live with those tiles in our homes, in our schools, churches, even in businesses still. And I always thought that tile was something that belonged in Florida, California, Europe, Middle East. So to learn that we have that we have this here is really special. He was a major artist in Milwaukee in the 1920s and 30s. And he was a major artist in the American ceramics field as well uh, because he had a career in Zanesville, Ohio. There were many ceramic factories there. And, they, and in Zanesville, they produced bricks, tiles, all sorts of ceramic products that are all across the nation. And then he started a business in Flint, Michigan, and he had three, four years of a career there developing an art tile company that's also all over the nation. And then he moved to South Milwaukee, and at about 35, 36 years old, he started this tile company that a lot of major artists in the Milwaukee community went there. And he was not just an artist, he was not just a businessman. He was very poetic and philosophical, and he inspired others. The individuals that worked at the Continental Plant, not everybody was an artist, but to him it was important that artist within them was developed. Absolutely. I think that's something that stood out to me when I was reading the book myself was who was working with him or for him. And the book talks about how much of Bergman's experiences growing up in Belgium influenced his work, especially the design of his tiles, What are some examples in Milwaukee that show this work? Well, I'd like to answer that by talking specifically about the tiles. I was very hungry to sort of unveil what made Bergman's tiles unique. Because if you're looking at interwar period tiles between World War I and World War II, a lot of the themes that were present were ships and animals and historical events and the birth of the nation and it's 
very easy for people looking at this type of art tile and to think, who did it? It's, it's difficult to see because to the untrained eye, they're all very similar. <laughs> and if you look at the decorative motifs carved into the decorative inserts, and a lot of those motifs go back to designs that come from Belgium or Europe. I mean, it was called the Continental Fayence Tile Company. So it was definitely aiming to bring back that European style to the Americans' built environment that a lot of people wanted as well. So some of those, some of those motifs included these curly volutes. And if you look at a lot of Dutch tile specifically, there's this thing called the oxbow. And you'll see it in the corner of the tiles, like the horns of an ox. And you see literal motifs that are oxbow motifs on some of continental tiles. There's this beautiful 12-inch design of tulip medallions. If you go to the Bradley Symphony Center, if you walk in their gorgeous lobby, you'll see these tulips, and they're, and they're really beautiful, and they're purple. Purple glazed ceramics is not normal. So you'll see this motif, though, as well, represented in many other variations on these tiles that you don't see in other American tile manufacturers from this time. You know, it's mentioned in the book that Bergman's tiles are often confused for the work of other tile makers. It's mentioned the California tile maker Ernest Batchelder. Mm. What makes Bergman's work distinguishable? Or how were you able to correctly identify his work? Well, for us correctly identifying the tile, a lot of that was based on the shards that Kelly and Kathy had collected. There's thousands of shards that were at the factory site, and Kelly and Kathy had the privilege of noticing these when they were there, and they went through that field and, and recovered a lot of them from just being lost. So these shards really helped give us a guide to what was continental tile, because in the early 2000s, there were no drawings or sales brochures that we had to tell us this. And they found those things throughout the years as well. One really significant find that they had gotten from the plant as well were these shop drawings of the tile designs that they had, and they had numbers on them as well, which was like finding gold for us. So that, in addition to the shards, were the two main finds that helped us identify what is continental. And one of the major distinctions in contrast to Ernest Batchelder was that Continental's tiles are very brightly glazed. The, the main type of Batchelder tile that we associate that aesthetic with are these muted neutral colors with a blue glaze in the recessed carved areas. So they're very soft colored and muted, uh, whereas Continental tiles are bright. It definitely seems like you guys developed the keen eye for... Bergman's work. There were many conversations we've had where we, you know, is this continental? Is this flint? Is this <laughs> right. Uh, looking at American tiles or looking at historical tiles, unless if you're able to, you know, chip the tiles out of the wall and look at the back of them, it can be difficult to say who made what. So that's probably why this book took three years. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. And and something that was really beautiful about the book is you know, there are nearly 1,300 photos in the book. I know. We counted that at the end. We have more. <laughs> <laughs> Mostly of Bergman's tile work and tiles made in his factory. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I'm assuming so many of the photos are taken by you. Yes, I, I, I took a majority of the photos in the book. And I had gone back to all the places that Kelly and Kathy went to as well and 
you know, because uh, a lot of the visits that Kelly and Kathy went to, uh, they had done in the early 2000s. They had gone to buildings that are no longer here, especially the Continental factory itself that was torn down in 2008. And uh, the South Milwaukee Middle School as well, that was torn down in 2003, I think. Uh, we have photographs of things that are just lost now. Right. I was going to ask you, how did you know where to go in Milwaukee and other surrounding cities to find his tiles? So, you know, certainly Kelly and Kathy, I mean, having worked on this for so many years, they had already an inventory of tile installations in the Milwaukee area, and they didn't give it to me right away. They, I had to work for it. <laughs> and, you know, though, I'm familiar with the architecture, especially from the 20s, and 30s. I mean, that was the heyday for architectural terracotta. So uh, I just kind of knew where to look. And <laughs> I mean, I just, it's like my eyes are a magnet for these, I swear. <laughs> um, and, you know, the Wisconsin Historical Society website is an amazing resource to do building research. So for buildings that were outside of the city of Milwaukee and throughout the state, I was able to use their online resource to look up properties. Wow. It was really interesting to learn that over a dozen schools across Milwaukee and Wauwatosa kept Continental in business during yes. the Great Depression in the 1930s. Why did so many schools want tiles and why was it so popular? There's a lot of things to say about that. In the 1920s is really when almost every school, if it was being built, it had tiles put in it somewhere, usually at the drinking fountains. Uh, but kindergarten rooms with fireplaces, tiled fireplaces, nursery rhymes, animals on them, that was the trend. And there were many reasons for that. Uh, you know, this is coming out of the arts and craft movement where domestic art was really important. It's also coming out of post-World War One, where you've got the country itself was trying to encourage homes to be more sanitary because of the, the great influenza. So this idea also affected the schools. And the reason they say is that they wanted kindergartners to feel at comfort at school and to help transition them from the home life because they probably had fireplaces at home <laughs> with tile. Um, but they wanted to transition them into the school. Uh, just, it's, it's incredible what they would do. Well, I was really sad to learn the Continental Tile Factory was demolished in 2008. Why do you think it's important to preserve tile work similar to Berkman's? It is really sad that the factory was torn down in 2008, and a lot of residents in South Milwaukee agree with that. It was not the opinion of the majority, for sure. I want to just talk about that building specifically because, you know, if people don't know the value of what's there, then they're not going to be as inclined to preserve it. And I don't know how many tile factory buildings like still exist from that era you know Batchelder's home still exists but I'm not sure of how many of these type of tiled showrooms from that interwar period are around and it was three rooms covered in tile floor and wall I, I understand at the time that the industrial buildings behind it were an eyesore and I mean, some people saw potential. Jay Benkowski had an entire design to turn it into condominiums. But as I understand it, just that wasn't the trend in the early 2000s in that area. But, 
you know, if people don't know what they have, then they're not going to be as inclined to keep it. I mean, certainly not every tile installation is necessary to keep. I mean, there's there's stuff that's valuable and there's things that are not. And but I think, you know, if the dollar does mean anything other than money, it it's speaking to its value. Absolutely. I was going to ask, uh, how has Carl Bergman's work influenced your own work as a tile maker or has he? Well, definitely. <laughs> he definitely has influenced my tile work. And in many ways, he's helped freed me up to be the artist I've always wanted to be. For a long time, I did ceramic sculpture. And I would invest a lot of time in one piece. And then it would crack or fall apart. And I very good with failure, <laughs> as most ceramists are. And, you know, now, now instead of working on a life-size piece or you know, a bust. Mm-hmm. Uh, now I'm working on four-inch tiles and six-inch. Sometimes it's two-inch size tiles that I'm carving and glazing, and and it's fun. It's just working on this small scale and taking a tile and repeating it, you know, two hundred times. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's uh it's really engaging, and and I I missed drawing. You know, mm-hmm. that's that's the great thing about creating tiles that you can draw in the material and then you get to paint on it with glaze and bring it bring it to life with color so it's allowed me to express parts of my experience in the world oh, uh, that yeah sculpture never did so wow yeah well ben thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today and sharing your work with me my pleasure Ben Tyeski is a co-author, local tile maker, and art teacher from Milwaukee Public Schools. He spoke with Lake Effect's Excret Nunez, and you can learn more about the book at wuwm.com. During a total solar eclipse, the moon passes between the sun and earth, blocking the bright face of the sun and revealing our star's pearly white atmosphere. To see this, you've got to head to what's called the path of totality. That's the path the moon's shadow takes across the earth. If you're in the right place at the right time, for a brief moment, day becomes night. August 2017 was the last time a total solar eclipse happened in the United States. Six years ago, Andy Rash drove to Illinois to see it with his young son. He shares that story in a new children's book called Eclipse. Rash is a children's book author and illustrator and teaches at MyAd. He speaks with WUWM reporter Lena Tran. Tell me about this book and where it began for you. I went with my son to see the total eclipse in 2017 when he was just seven years old and it was just the two of us on this trip. And we were so amazed by the, uh, just the whole experience of it that it never really left me. And so I wrote a picture book, and it stars me and my son, and just tells the story of viewing an eclipse, hoping that people will go out and try to see the eclipse that's coming up, especially the one in, in April. As an author and an artist, you're able to convey to people like how great eclipses are and you know why they should go out of their way to see them. How do you describe you know what an eclipse is or what that experience was like? Well, first of all, the one thing that uh, made a huge difference was going to the path of totality. It makes a lot of difference, and we just looked on a website to tell us where to go. I tried my best through my illustrations to try to convey what an 
it's a really fascinating, unusual experience. It looks very, very strange and extremely beautiful. I just tried my best with gouache and digital to uh, recreate the experience. And something that's fun about this book is that you wrote it from your son's perspective. What was that like? He actually wrote a, a, a project for school uh, about this trip, too, and that really inspired me. I thought the uh, perspective of the, of the son would be the uh, more engaging for kids. And the anticipation that goes throughout the book is, it's intended to kind of mirror the, as, as the sun approaches the moon, passes behind it, and then continues on. Yeah, I absolutely got that. I love that it's framed around this countdown. I'm sure that's really fun for kids, but it's like two months I've been planning, you know, a week we're packing, a day left that me and my dad are driving down, and it really captures the sense of anticipation that's so unique with eclipses, which is that we know exactly when and where it's going to happen down to the second. But once it does, it's just like you totally lose yourself in all of these strange emotions that you didn't really know that you could feel about the sun. It, it was really surprising. I mean, I thought I knew what I was going to experience, but the moment it was a total eclipse and we took off our eclipse glasses, Everyone was hooting and, you know, and everyone was cheering and crickets were chirping. It was, it was just a really fascinating experience. Do you remember what your son's reaction was at that time and what it was like to share with him? I do, especially because I took a video, you know, and you can't see anything because it's phone video, but I could hear what he was saying and he was really, really excited and it was an extremely, you know, it was a really breathtaking experience. Andy actually dug out that video that he took in 2017 during Totality. You can hear the excitement. Oh, oh look, look, without your glasses, buddy. Whoa! <laughs> wow. Wow. <laughs> Pretty good. Take a bunch of pictures. <laughs> well, we are super lucky in the U.S. that we have another eclipse coming up, another total solar eclipse coming up in April. So for any coronaphiles or anyone that is like converted by this conversation is like, wow, I really want to see this. There's another opportunity. But what I love about the end of your book is that you have... Your son, he's like already looking forward to the next one. And at the time, it must have sounded so far away. That's seven years ago. But I love how you really capture the passage of time. There's this really lovely illustration of you two together at presumably the next eclipse. And he's taller than you. There's more gray in your hair. Yeah, reflect on the time that's passed. And what do you guys have planned for the eclipse next year? You know, when I drew that image, the intention was that it was going to be an eclipse much further in the distance. <laughs> but since my son is 13, he is nearly as tall as me now. And I was looking at that last illustration, and I was just like, oh, no, that's already happened. We know that we are going to be going to see it on the path of totality and going to bring the rest of my family this time as well because it, it's just... It's just not to be missed. Then there's the annular eclipse that's going to be happening on October 14th. I've been invited to the Air and Space Museum in D.C., and I'm going to be presenting the book there. So that's where I'll be for that one. 
it's it's such a cool way to mark the passage of time on our planet just like these crazy intersections of earth and the sun and the moon it's an enormous clock it's really amazing and uh, i have uh, maps in the front of the back of the book that show where the paths will be far into the future so we know where eclipses will be like in the distant future already Okay, so imagine that you have a friend who is looking at this map um, for next year's eclipse and is like, oh, it seems like kind of a long drive and there will be probably a lot of traffic. What would you say to your friend to be like, no, you should totally take your kid and go. It's really worth it. I would say they're right. It's going to be a lot of traffic. <laughs> Getting back took forever. And there's actually a page devoted to traffic in the book. But... I think it's absolutely worth it. It was just a world-shaking experience for us, and we still talk about it all the time, even outside you know, the context of uh, publishing this book this year. I am going to be reading the book and signing the book at Boswell here in Milwaukee on October 7th at 11 a.m., and I'd love for people to come out. Thank you so much for sharing. Thank you. Andy Rash is a children's book author. His newest book is called Eclipse, and he spoke with WUWM's Lena Tran about it. The next total solar eclipse across North America takes place on April 8th this year. We'll take one more break and then return with some music and a chat with Willie Porter for the latest episode of our music series, Live at Lake Effect. Keep listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. This is Like Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Live at Lake Effect is our music series featuring local and nationally touring artists performing in the Lake Effect Surf Shop in Shorewood. We brought the Lake Effects together, along with Visionary Studios, to showcase musicians once a month, starting with an interview with a band airing exclusively here on Lake Effect. Today we have Milwaukee's own Willie Porter. He's a guitarist and singer-songwriter with more than a dozen albums under his belt. Joining Porter at the surf shop is Dave Adler on the keys, Carmen Nickerson on backing vocals, Eric Madunik on bass and backing vocals, and Dave Shepke on the drums. Here's Willie Porter and his band performing Change Your Mind. Change our minds 
Hi, this is Audrey Nowakowski from Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. We're here at the Lake Effect Surf Shop in Shorewood, along with Milwaukee musician Trapper Shep, my co-producer for Live at Lake Effect. Hello, Trapper. Audrey, I am so happy to be here. And since I moved to Milwaukee in 2008, I have seen Willie Porter in the basement of the UWM Union. I have seen Willie Porter at the Paps Theater, every sort of venue in town. But you have always been to me, you know, Milwaukee's premier acoustic musician. It's always adventurous, wow, ambitious, 
and really remarkable stuff. So thank you for bringing yourself and your band with. Wow, thank you so much, yeah. Trapper. And thank you, Audrey, for the opportunity. Yeah, thanks for being here. So longtime listeners of Lake Effect, the radio program, will have heard the closing credits theme music by Willie Porter. Recently, though, my co-host here, Trapper Shep, has taken the reins from you in that regard. Are you okay with this? <laughs> you know what? I, somebody had to take the place of T-Rex Disco. I that was, was trying the to remember. I knew song. it was T-Rex and yeah. Disco, but I couldn't remember the title, um, so I'm glad you I brought that Trapp up. And I think Trap really, I think he delivered on that. Are so. you going to be okay? You know, it's taken me a while. I'm, I'm a little sleepless at times, <laughs> um, and I'm given to uh, moments of uh, uncontrolled sadness. But over, other than that, I'm fine. Well, You'll be okay. Yeah. T-Rex Disco always has a place in my heart. You know Thank that. You. So, um, and you just played with us a few songs from your latest record, but one song, a multi-part song, I should add, called The Ravine. So it ebbs and flows like a classical music piece at times, clocks in around nine minutes, Listeners will be able to hear and see it later online. So can you talk about the inspiration for this song, The Ravine, and, and how it fits into what you're working on right now? Sure, thank you. Um, the Ravine is the title off the latest record, and it seemed to sort of encapsulate everything that's on the album. So there are moments of, you know, that are more aggressive. There are some very quiet moments. Um, some beautiful instrumental work from the band, and it was an opportunity to feature the band. Originally, I was trying to work on a piece that I could record with the Carpe Diem String Quartet. It was a great uh, violinist named Chaz Weatherby, and so at the very beginning of the sort of genesis of this tune, I was thinking of them, thinking of recording it with a quartet, but I'm so glad um, that the band got a hold of it and have, have treated it the way they have, so... In 1997, Bob Dylan was recording a song called Highlands. That's 16 minutes long. And when he got into the control room, um, Columbia Records executive said to him, you know, Bob, that, that was great, but, you know, is there a short version? And he said, <laughs> that, that was the short version. I love so, that. Yeah. Uh, I've always loved that and thought about music without the constraints of time. And I'm wondering, that song in particular, is that one that you wrote during the pandemic when time seemed to be uh, a bit up in the air? Everyone was was sort of scrambling. I did, and, and I really, um, it's a great comparison thing to, you know, writing songs that have, that are longer forms. You know, I love that Lou Reed comment when um, someone asked him about a song of his and said it was too long. He said, well, you know, if you went to Melville and asked him to take, you know, chapters out of Moby Dick, which ones mm -hmm. would you have him discard? And, and that was Lou Reed's take on his work. In this case, for me, it's kind of a meditation. Mm -hmm. And songs are like a ride, and there's got to be variation within the ride that makes it enjoyable for the players, but also the audience gets elements that are unexpected. And I think that's um, kind of what the, makes this record different than stuff I've done in the past. Mm -hmm. We're about 30 years out, I think, from the album Dog Eared Dream. Is that correct? Yeah, Trees Have Soul is really the first one, and that was 1990, cool. so I'm a little past that 30-year cool. mark. And uh, Mike Hoffman was yeah. the producer on that album, and I'm sorry for your loss, first oh, and foremost. Yeah. Uh, Mike was a great... Milwaukee uh, producer and player about town for those listeners at home that do not know. And I was wondering, Willie, what sort of mark he left on you and your music? 
Well, this record, The Ravine, was co-produced by him, and oh, he okay. passed during the record. Wow. Mm. Which was really, um, it took me about five months to sort of find the ground and figure out how to finish this album. So Mike's fingerprints are all over this project. Um, there's a song called A Dog and a Leash, um, another tune called Your Honor, and um, he's playing and singing on these tunes. And his musicality and his sort of zen approach to positivity in the studio is something that I would love to try to emulate, but it was very singular to Mike. He was very much um, the glass is half full, especially in the studio. So yeah, really hard loss um, in the process of making this record, but you know, a gift to all of us. Mike is this, everyone in my band has had contact with him and um, we're all just blessed and fortunate to have shared some time on this planet with him. We're fortunate to hear some of that influence here today at the shop, especially. Hmm. So with your career and being a longtime Milwaukee musician staple, what are some of the biggest changes you've noticed in Milwaukee's music scene throughout the years? And, and you have the, the pleasure of touring all over the world and country. So hmm. what is it about Milwaukee that's kept your footing here and, and keeps you contributing to the local music community, especially? Well, I think there are so many great writers and creators that are here and choose to live here. and one of the great aspects of Milwaukee is simply its geography. We're closer to Nashville. We can go to either coast. We can do things that way. But, you know, there's folks like Trap here that are tearing it up and writing great songs and, and um, inspiring people to keep reaching. Brett Newski is a guy who lights me up. I just, I think there's a lot of great rock and roll being recorded and there are a lot of young artists that are coming up. There's um, Sean Hinton lives here, a great producer, guitar player from Mary J. Blige's band. And the work he's doing is really just lighthouse work. So it's a great town. And I think we should celebrate more the original music that we have. Well, Willie, thanks so much for joining us today for Live at Lake Effect. It's great to have you. What a pleasure. Thank, Thank you. Thank you, Willie. Thank you. That was Willie Porter joining us for Live at Lake Effect. Be sure to head to wuwm.com and our YouTube and social media channels to see him and his band performing in the Lake Effect Surf Shop. That video is done by Visionary Studios. Milwaukee musician Trapper Shep and myself are the executive producers of Live at Lake Effect. Sound engineering is done by WUWM's Jason Reavy. New episodes of Live at Lake Effect are released monthly. And be sure to check out our past episodes featuring Reina, Chicken Wire Empire, Abby Jean, Daniel Rodriguez, and more. And that's all for Lake Effect today. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. If you've missed any of today's conversations or you'd like to take Lake Effect on the go, download our podcast. Just search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to listen to all of our shows on demand. Tomorrow on Lake Effect, we'll speak with a Marquette professor about their first fiction novel called Dryland all about a young conservationist with the secret gift of growing plants by touch. Plus, we'll meet the artists behind Food Journeys, an exhibit at the Milwaukee Winters Farmer's Market about how Milwaukeeans describe their connections to the food system. That's tomorrow at noon on Lake Effect, right here on listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. Cast off the loss and undertone.